Thomas. Welcome back to my little habitat in the virtual universe. In the last few videos in this series, we've been discussing the problem of divine absence. That is, we've been discussing the manner in which the, the non-obviousness of God, uh, at least non-obvious on certain registers, renders modern persons liable to the temptation of atheism. In the last two videos, we've, we've named and interpreted the phenomenon of divine absence, and the plan was that we'd talk about what a faithful Christian response to divine absence might look like in the next video. But as the title of this particular offering suggests, I'm going to treat this session as an interlude, promising then to complete the discussion of the Christian response to divine absence next time. The reason I've decided to do this is, as the video title also makes clear, uh, the reason I've decided to do this is that the recent anxiety over the coronavirus makes certain questions fresh for us, and especially questions related to God's seeming silence in the face of it. Here we are, many are understandably and legitimately concerned. People are worried about their loved ones. People are worried about the economy and whether or not they'll have enough money to pay rent. <laughs> People are worried about social stability and cultural continuity, etc. So, so where is comfort to be found? Or perhaps is there comfort to be found? In the face of a, of a real threat, after all, we need real comfort. We need something with, with teeth, not a pious fairy tale or an amorphous metaphysical construct whose being is so vague to us that its value evaporates in the context of real problems and concerns. A lot of Christians, and especially pastors, are going to be getting asked things like, why did God creator? Why does God allow things like viruses? I'm making this video not because I pretend that any comprehensive theodicy or answer to the problem of suffering is available in the next few score minutes, but because I think there are nevertheless some things that we can say that are basic and helpful. So I offer these words simply as one lay brother to my fellow brethren and sistren, uh, hoping you find them encouraging and useful as you seek to work through these issues yourself and as you seek to help others who are likewise concerned. Two preliminary comments, though. First, I don't assume any particular position about the scope of the virus's threat or its solution. I'm responding exclusively to people in their relation to the virus, not, not pretending to have some special insight into the virus itself or what to do about it at a practical or economic level. Second, for, for the sake of this video, I'm going to take the existence of God for granted. Again, part of this larger series will involve giving positive reasons for believing in the existence of God, but for now, I'm just going to take it for granted and, and work from there for, for just our present purposes. All right, so let's identify a guiding question. D does the existence of, of things like this coronavirus mean that God is not concerned for us and with us? Is the fact that he hasn't stopped this thing obvious evidence that he can't really be trusted to be God for us? In short, can we still trust God? I think that's the, the question we need to address, perhaps, most essentially. One temptation that I think a lot of us will face as we work through this question is the temptation of reducing God to something or someone that is sort of one-noted. Uh, it only takes a, a scroll through one's Facebook feed to see what I'm talking about here. On, on the one hand are those who reduce this situation and God in light of it to confident proclamations that we're all under some special judgment. I won't, I won't spend too much time on this interpretation. Typically, the, the problem with such persons is not that they just need to sprinkle a little more grace throughout their confident mediation of the Lord's mind to the rest of us. 
but rather that they need to question if they do not simply enjoy the opportunity to be a bit dramatic. <laughs> they come off as often kind of having something to prove, scripting themselves into the role of the, the tough guys who tell it like it is, unlike those pansy Christian wannabes. But this is, this is not the only or perhaps even the most predominant way to reduce God. Uh, in a nation of, of, of moralistic therapeutic deists, as Christian Smith has iconically summarized the religion of millennials, the struggle will more likely be to collapse God into the image of some sort of infinite empathizer, uh, a mere friend who weeps with those who weep and who whispers softly into our spiritual ears as, uh, you know, that he's got our back or something like this. I'd want to argue, though, that, that such a one-noted vision of God is actually not a comfort to anyone who's really suffering. God could, after all, stop this virus in a second. God could fix the economy by this afternoon without breaking a sweat. God could give the doctors who are working on the vaccine miraculous and immediate success. God could keep those who are dying from dying, and, and maybe he will. It's, it's right to ask for all of these things. But no God who is worthy of the name is unable to do these things. And for precisely this reason, mere divine empathy and compassion only have so much comfort purchase. Because our question is precisely why God is not relieving us of our immediate problems, even though he could. Analogously, if you, you, know, you, know, if you had a friend who saw that you were sick and suffering and who had a vial of medicine to offer you, and who was right next to you with that vial of medicine for whom it would cost no inconvenience to offer it to you, you would take little comfort from such a friend if they said, now, now I'm not actually going to give you this medicine, but I do feel bad that you're going through this. No, for, for those who want some, so, some substantial comfort for a real crisis, I don't think a God, the infinite empathizer, can do the trick. Real comfort in the real world requires more than that. And it is crucial to note that we are withholding deeper comfort in some way in the name of a more proximate and immediate comfort if we don't recognize and address this. That is to say, we, we inoculate and numb ourselves to a deeper agitation if we seek merely to address surface symptoms. The result of this, this kind of comfort will only be prolonged and internally consumptive instability that will inevitably bubble to the surface. We need to, to live in, in sober reality. And to say that implies that some bits of reality are in fact quite sobering. Let's talk about these for a minute. Let's talk about some, some of these sobering pieces of our circumstance. And I, and I think this will actually put us in a better place to understand where and how divine love and God's personal presence in Christ do concretely minister to us. So, so we're rejecting quick comfort for the sake of, of deep-seated rest in taking this approach. So let's talk about several of these serious realities that do constitute parts of our, our situation. I'd want to mention, to mention three truths I think we need to be aware of to, to fully understand what we're dealing with. Uh, one of those truths is about our world, one of those truths is about God, and one of those truths is about ourselves. Starting first with the world, then, we need to remind ourselves that we live in a fallen world. To ask about the relationship between God and viruses requires the acknowledgement that viruses were not part of God's original intention for his creation. 
Now, we don't need to be dogmatic about precisely how all that works out, where, where virus is somehow part of the created world, but suspended in their effects in man's original condition or uh, exclusively good in their effects. There are some complicated questions we need not get into here, but suffice it to say that our present experience of a pandemic was not part of God's original express design for humanity, even if it was part of his ultimate decree and did not in any sense take him by surprise. All I mean to say here is that the situation that God originally made for man was not a situation that involved these kinds of experiences that we're having right now. Now, I can't fully defend the historicity of Adam or the fall accounts in this video. I do hope to do that in, in future videos. But I think we can get at the profundity, at least, of these narratives in a more immediate and basic way. That is, even for those who are, who are skeptical about any historical inferences to be drawn from these accounts, we all do implicitly recognize that the world contains a, a kind of paradoxical juxtaposition between what we in some way feel ought to be the case and what we experience to actually be the case. Um, to the extent that we lament various crises in the world and in our experience, we, we implicitly imagine an, an opposite circumstance where such crises did not exist in our lives reflected in our, in our ordinary anxieties then is, is some longing for paradise, even if sometimes in a sort of secularized form that we find, for instance, in something like John Lennon's Imagine. Human beings have, of course, interpreted this juxtaposition in a few ways. Some, both, both ancient and modern, speak of this tragic structure of human life as simply part of the nature of reality, an, eradic an ineradicable feature of finite existence and being. And yet, it is unclear if this fully gets at the phenomenon itself. If this is just the way things are, and yet we find ourselves thinking and feeling that this is not the way things are supposed to be, as the title of Cornelius Plantinga's book on this subject suggests, then we're left with reducing our kind of primal response to all these sorts of things to be merely a subjective response. That is, there's nothing objective about the world, about reality that's highlighted in our ordinary reaction. There's no actual way things are supposed to be out there that is uncovered in our responses. I, I, and I suspect that if we spent time to fully interrogate such a conclusion, we, we could locate some deep incoherencies there, both, both formal and lived contradictions. But, but seemingly limited as such an explanation is, given that we intuitively think of our interpretation that things are not the way they're supposed to be as, as naming something objective about the world, many people groups in history, and, and especially in the Judeo-Christian tradition, have interpreted the history of man as, as just incoherent, apart from some deep fracture in our most ancient past. You can find quite similar stories among the most ancient tribes in the world, and, and there was a that there, was a, that there was a strange sort of paradisical moment and opportunity for man in our ancient heritage, but that man in some deep and profound way failed in his relationship to God and the world, and that the current circumstances are a reflection of that failure. Pa Paul Ricoeur uh, once wrote something along these lines, that the fall is a tragedy only when it becomes historical. The fall is tragic only if it's an event. If we remove some real fracture in time in the story of our race, we naturalize and therefore defang the tragedy of tragedy and consequently sort of untether our visceral response to the evil of this world from any order of things against which to measure our experience. 
Now, we could say a lot more here. One response might be to say that the objectivity of our felt sense of violation reflects a tension between our present world and the world we hope for. That is to say, the juxtaposition we're looking for, uh, look, looking at, that is, doesn't require some fracture in the past, but only some resolution in the future. It is true, of course, that a future hope is part of the picture, but if it's entirely normal and just part of the order of things that the world we hope for isn't this current world or any world that's existed in the past, then we kind of kick the explanatory can down the, down the pike one step. Uh, presumably, we, we, we still think of this, that this world ought to be like that one. Uh, as we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. And if so, we, we have the same problem that's mentioned above and the same logic applies. So without, to, without pausing to figure out how to answer all questions about this, it seems clear in both scripture and our own consciousness uh, and in the testimony of many peoples, even outside the Judeo-Christian tradition, that there's some disruption between what we were made for and what we do currently experience. That is to say, we live in a, in a world under a state of, of judgment. Instead of being preserved from danger and ill, we are exposed to the threats of the world. We, we decay in our bodies. We have lost certain privileges of an ancient dominion that are now mostly paradoys, uh, sort of parodied in a kind of exploitive dominion over nature. We live in a, in a world under judgment. The, the Apostle Paul could even speak of the reign of death in this age. The Bible speaks about the current order of things as in bondage to decay, anxiously awaiting a new order. Man was, man was in, in scripture, depicted as originally preserved from these forces and offered the possibility of a, of a fixed and final order, but man sought to seize this end for himself rather than resting in the wisdom and timing of God. Man's primal error was giving into a demand for more and now, rather than trusting that God's goodness and timing were perfect for him. And well-intentioned, uh, part, part of the lie of the serpent is that, you know, God is two-faced, right? God can't be trusted, you see. He knows what will happen if you really figure out what he's up to. That was part of Satan's original, original whispering. And the consequence for this seizure was not the removal of the Adamic office, we are, all of us, still rulers of this world in an important sense, and, but we now tend to image ourselves rather than our Heavenly Father. We, we ruin and perpetuate ruin rather than love and, and peace. And for throwing ourselves headlong into this, we were removed from the state that would have preserved us in our own misery and our self-sabotage. We were, we were kicked out of paradise, in other words. And as I'll talk about in my, my video on divine absence next time, this is part of, though crucially not all of, the explanation for our experience of divine absence. The, the obviousness of God's personal presence is largely withheld in the history of the human race precisely because this world is under judgment. This isn't paradise. The, the temple of this world has not been immediately and finally filled with the glory of God in the, in the manifest way that we hope for at the end of time. This sober truth about our world suggests second then a sober truth about God. It is absolutely the case that God is love. It is absolutely the case that God cares for us, that he, that he hears our prayers, has a loving kindness that extends to the thousandth generation that God is scandalously merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's perpetually patient, that he's kind. 
but it's also the plain truth of the Bible and reflected in our own experience of reality that God is a judge. He's not our savior in spite of being our judge. And indeed his salvation in scripture is precisely and ultimately, as we see in places like Romans 5, from his own judgment, from our perpetual subjection to this tragic order of things, as well as to, uh, 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 from, the, from the final consequences of our sin. God's love does get the first and the last word. God loves what he created. Indeed, he loves what he created enough to send his own son to bear the full weight of the world's disorder and its bondage to decay, and most principally, his own final and righteous judgment, in order that his love might remain the first and last word. But between these, between creation and redemption, is a fall. And the sober truth is that the fall means that there's enmity between us and the God of love. It is not an enmity rooted in human-like anger or passion on God's part, but a perfectly proportionate response of a perfect person to the ruination of that which he loves and cares for. A perfect and proportionate response of the divine artist to the havoc unleashed upon his good art. And so sometimes the Bible can sound harsh. In Luke 13, uh, some folks uh, approach Jesus about a slaughter wrought upon the Jews by Pilate in the temple, perhaps expecting Jesus to simply express outrage at this, this mean Pilate fella. Uh, Jesus uh, instead ups the ante. He, he mentions an, another disaster involving apparently a kind of random freak occurrence where, where a tower fell down and killed some folks. Uh, and then he asks his hearers whether the living had been spared, whether in a circumstance of persecution or in a random accident, because they were more righteous than those who perished. Jesus, who is full of love and compassion, sees these instances as moments in which humans are invited to soberly reflect that the living are not living because they are more righteous than the dead. It's an interesting response. And so we need not, we need not read these kinds of things as some, necessarily some special judgment on some particularly naughty folks. We're all sinners and deserve judgment. And so Christ rather says, unless you repent, you too will perish. That's how he, that's his invocation in that context. And we might be tempted to think that Jesus is being a tad cold here. <laughs> I, I don't like Jesus. I don't like it when Jesus talks this way myself, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that just might be my problem. <laughs> and maybe it's, Maybe it's that we tend to project on Jesus some image of a kind of stone-hearted truth-teller who doesn't seem to reflect compassion in the face of a tragedy. But, but let's relieve ourselves of this kind of projection on Jesus. Uh, let's relieve ourselves. Jesus isn't that way. We have every reason to think of Jesus as full of compassion and love. And what this means is that it's necessarily the case that Jesus is actually, what Jesus is saying actually involves his compassion and love. And we need to figure out how that is. He's, Jesus is always speaking to us out of his goodwill. Uh, that is to say, you and I apparently need Jesus to talk to us this way, precisely because such hard words are from his compassion. In moments of injustice and natural tragedy, it would seem we need to be reminded that we are not preserved because of our righteousness. And we need to be reminded that death and judgment are in principle around the corner for us. And there might be other resonances in Luke 13 regarding the destruction of the temple of, of Jerusalem in AD 70. That might be what he's referring to, but I think the principle would still apply here, so I'll forgo that for now. Um, by the end of this video, I hope to make clear how such words can be received as words of compassion. 
for now, I, I've simply tried to highlight two sober truths. The first is that we're in a world under judgment. The second, following from it, is that God has judged us and will judge us. None of these, however, make sense apart from the third sober truth, the truth about ourselves. And this is that we are sinners before we are victims. It is likely the case that our, our coming to grips with each of these truths rise and fall together. But the access point can, can vary uh, for, for our understanding of all of them together. For instance, especially those for those who live in a, in a modern Western context governed by often convenience and not a lot of at least a, at least a certain kind of suffering, it can be difficult to recall that the world itself has fallen. We've technologically suspended a lot of the ways in which this is manifest, most especially. We're quite good at removing any awareness of sickness and death from ourselves, which is why a moment like this is so shocking when tragedy strikes. Hey, you know, it becomes an existential crisis for us. We're not used to it. For a lot of our ancestors, such vulnerability and felt fragility was just commonplace. And so, so consequently was their belief that the world was under judgment and therefore that man deserved this judgment. But, but that last truth is also hard for modern persons. Pe people do figure that they aren't perfect, of course, but, but evil? <laughs> sure, we're a bit limited, maybe weak-willed sometimes, but actually sinister in some deep way? You know, that sounds kind of dramatic, doesn't it? And yet, no compelling account of the world's tragedy can finally neglect the most tragic aspect of our existence, and that is ourselves. We're, we're, we are often quite able to take up the role of final judge relative to others, but sometimes cannot quite find a way to see ourselves. And yet our, our ordinary judgment is just a shadow of the true reality. Our judgment of others and of ourselves is itself shallow. If we truly saw others and truly saw ourselves, we would be stunned by, on the one hand, our innate dignity and the worth of each of us. And for precisely that reason, in fact, we would be utterly scandalized by ourselves because we would see something with such worth and dignity that is sick, that's addicted, that hurts others. You know, we, we speak unkindly and unreverentially to kings of this world, you know, that is to other persons. <laughs> we perpetuate ruin. There's a trail of bodies in most of our rearview mirrors. And to the extent that we don't see this, it's likely that we're just simply in denial. That's not a particularly Christian claim even, though it is something Christians have perhaps uniquely and, 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 and thoroughly reflected upon. But it only takes the world of film and literature and it's putting man under the microscope to have confirmed that we all participate in a deep uncleanness and live among persons who are unclean. You know, we, we gossip. We trivialize the feelings we have about others. We, we trivialize our failure to love God and our neighbor as though these were some small things simply to be expected. This is a, a deep suppression of the truth. And in our most honest moments, we see it and, and we can weep over it. The greatest tragedy of all is not that the world is under judgment or that God is my judge, but that I deserve God's judgment. But these words have gravity and are full of tragedy. They're worthy of profound grief. I am part of the problem. Again, this is the universal testimony of great literature. One might, one might read uh, Darren Aronofsky's recent film, Noah, as well as 
Paul Schrader's first reformed as kind of quasi-secular attempts to grasp precisely with this truth, that man is worthy of judgment, that we are a peculiar species whose dignity and intrinsic worth stands in interesting and profound contrast to our extraordinarily tragic squandering of our gifts, both individually and as a species. And we can't talk about the problem of human suffering honestly and truthfully until we've been scandalized by ourselves. That doesn't answer the question entirely, of course, but it's an irreducible part of the, the final equation. Now, if the truths I stated in, in, in the video thus far were the only truths, then there would be little reason to talk about all of this rather than just drink our problems away. If Jesus' words about repentance weren't surrounded by a, by a birth and a death narrative in Luke's gospel, they'd sound in our ears with the same powerless invocation to, to white-knuckling that torture the consciences of all the great moral traditions. You see, Jesus' command to repent doesn't imply that God is sitting up in heaven with, you know, crossed arms waiting for us to get with the program before he reluctantly dispenses a blessing or two. <laughs> Indeed, such a vision of God is perhaps the chief object requiring repentance for many human beings. And as I hope to show, despite all of the sober truths mentioned above, there are prior facts, more primal truths rather than the ones that we've mentioned. And what is revealed is that there in these prior facts and these more primal truths is that God is goodwilled toward us. Subjecting the world to judgment does not imply God's lack of compassion or mercy or care about our suffering, albeit we do not always have the proper calculus here, and that's important to say. And note that saying that's not a punch, as though it's often portrayed to be, oh, God works in mysterious ways, i.e., I don't know anything. <laughs> But, you know, are you, what, what do you think? Uh, of course God works in mysterious ways. We're talking about God here, not you. <laughs> any, any God about whom we're never allowed to say God moves in mysterious ways is an idol, and we don't need an idol. We need reality. Still, while trying to be humble about it, we can at least try to discern the ways in the heart of God as he's revealed to him, himself to us in Scripture and in our world. Um, God, God is personally as a character. So let's try to understand that character in some approximate way. Let's see if we can, we can trust him by means of that character to be God for us in, in a situation like this. In what ways then do these three tragic realities mentioned above nevertheless presume that God's goodness and generosity and love are both prior to these sober facts and also posterior to them, also after them. That is, how does God's love both precede and also defeat and dissolve the being of evil, its hold and claim upon his good cosmos? So let's think through those three facts, these three facts. One, being under judgment is a secondary truth about creation. Two, being in enmity with God is a secondary truth about man. And then three, being a sinner is not the final truth about man. So let's, let's take those in turn. Being under judgment is a secondary truth about creation. Prior to being distorted and under judgment, the world itself, the structure of creation is good and made so by God. Moreover, evil and suffering do not make God's creation ungood. Rather, they act as, as parasites on God's good creation. 
they can only manifest in what God has declared good. And this means that in every moment, creation is preserved rather than disintegrated into to judgment and suffering. We have testimony to the grace of God. Paul says this in Acts 14, of course, that the ordinary cycles of nature testify to the faithfulness of God and to God's mercy. The, the ordinary preservation of the world, the prevention of its total collapse, speak to God's mercy. The human race did and does not all die. He does not give us completely over to the greatness and gravity of our sin. He rather preserves us from what we might be and what the consequences of our actions might be on the regular. That is to say, isn't it likely the case that, that God answers the kinds of prayers for safety that we're praying right now all the time? This includes, by the way, the, the giving of insight to doctors in such a matter that by the use of their in such a manner that the, by the use of their imagination and reason, they're able to find some sort of relief for these ills. But it possibly includes all sorts of things we'll never even see. Each day is an absolute abundance, an overwhelming treasure of mercies that are the proper objects of delight and gratitude and are given to us out of the merciful heart and sustaining hand of God. Notice how the how the Lord's Prayer reflects gratitude just for the day's provisions. Our daily bread is of the Lord. Similarly, our, our daily health, our, our daily preservation from woe, our, our daily breath, our daily participation in the beautiful mystery of consciousness, our, our daily opportunity to love and to be loved, our daily experience uh, of the wonder and gift of being human, are all constant mercy, constant gifts of what could justly be withheld and disintegrated into nothing. Evil, then, must prey upon all this good. Suffering must prey upon all this delight. Hate must prey upon all this love. And so one of the things of which we need to be reminded is that we only experience life in a world under judgment while we are experiencing a world of God's mercy, his kindness, his perpetually giving us of time to enjoy and to find repentance and trust in him. And indeed, well, while God's final triumph over creation's ruin will take the form of the new heavens and new earth, God is already defeating our bondage to decay by inverting its consumptive tendencies. So, so how so? How is that true? Let's, let's think of Adam again to answer that. Man, Adam, abandoned faith in God in a, in a state of paradise. God restores faith in man in the wilderness of suffering. Looking from the garden forward, it may appear that Satan kind of won, right? It, it may appear that God's plan with man was totally derailed. And certainly it would seem as though the man who wouldn't trust God in the garden would surely not trust him outside of the garden. And indeed, a good bit of the Old Testament is an object lesson in this, perhaps. You know, tried in a world of vulnerability and dependence, the Israelites time and time again go their own way. Christ, of course, is the is the paradigmatic reversal of this, the, the faithful one who is the font of all faithfulness for us. God for man, he is also man unto God, faithful where we are faithless, absorbing a world of judgment while resting in his father that we might, in the new life that he provides, participate in his reversal of our final judgment, and also that we might follow through his spirit in his footsteps of faithfulness learning obedience and trust and suffering the way he did. 
learning that is to say that God is good and worthy of all the, the rest of my heart, fully good in his providence and utterly generous and reliable. So God defeats evil in this way and that what looks primed to work against man, that is a, a world of suffering and under judgment, is actually then employed by God uh, to, to train his children. The man who would not trust God in paradise will be trained to trust God in the wilderness. God shows his goodness and his glory and his power by accomplishing his purpose for man, despite this defiance, and even through it. And, and this is not simple literary irony. <laughs> the universal testimony of the Christian church, the lived experience of real Christians that we all know, is that God ministers to and reveals himself to be good to us precisely and even with special clarity in our pain and suffering and anxiety. And, and if you scoff at that, you really do need to meet third world Christians who believe in the sovereignty and the love of God. And you need to meet Christians in your own community who have suffered terribly, but who have been trained to confess God as both in control and as their advocate. Despite the difficult allowance of the effects of a world under judgment in their lives. Such persons rest in the goodness of a God who has, has defeated evil, is defeating evil, and will finally be victorious over a world that is under the spell of death. This is not to be trivialized. It is to the glory of God's name that he wins the heart of man without giving him all that he might want and without answering all of our prayers. Indeed, the, the more mature we get, the more it becomes clear to us that it would not be good for us if he did so. There's no need to be speculative here about which events are which and uh, what specific intentions are, are there in any particular event. But we, but we can say that we are difficult and fussy and complicated children who, who need a mercy that will also not leave us alone. <laughs> this is especially true for those of us who live in, with some degree of affluence, as most modern persons do, by, at least on, in certain respects, by historical standard, standards. Um, there's a, there's a, a lovely proverb in the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 30. Uh, author of these proverbs says, Two things I've asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I be not full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. It's legitimate to ask for daily bread that we might not be tempted to steal. But this text also suggests that we who experience a certain lack of a kind of dependence, or who experience a fair bit of luxury in certain things, are uniquely liable to forget God, to become numb to him. We forget to be grateful, and it is perhaps for this reason that suffering Christians often are the most grateful persons and the most attuned to the goodness of God. It is those who suffer the least ironically who often agitate the most about the so-called problem of suffering. And I think that that should tell us something. There are, there are exceptions, of course, but, uh, but I think this is generally the case. It is, it is worth reflecting on why this is. Suffering can either shove us deeper into ourselves or shove us out of ourselves to see the whole, the whole picture, all of reality with greater clarity. And that includes shoving us to see the enormous universe of God's constant and perpetual goodness and mercies. 
What about the second statement above? God's enmity with man is a, is a secondary truth about man. The fact that God is our judge is a scary truth, but it is rooted in the comforting fact that of God's goodness, actually. That is to say, God loves us. He loves his creation, his cosmos, and his being a judge implies that he will not suffer what ruins his good creation. But as, as, as man becomes the very protagonist, however, of creation's ruin, there's an apparent tension, at least from a human perspective, in God's values. God loves man, and precisely because of this, he gives himself to man to be enjoyed and will fight whatever prevents man from man's beatitude. That is, God will fight mankind's enemies. <laughs> and yet man is his own enemy. Man destroys himself. Man destroys God's good world and defies the Almighty. It is precisely the worth of creation that justifies God's displeasure at this. God does not want man to perish in his wickedness, but it is also impossible that God trivialize this offense. So, so what does he do? He restores man to friendship with himself by absorbing man's judgment and achieving man's destiny in the singular vocation of the God-man. Just as a, as a world under judgment, as we saw above, is kind of ironically reversed by becoming employed for our aid, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, <laughs> so God's very own judgment which would otherwise consume us, becomes the very location of our redemption in the endurance and in the vindication of Christ. God's perfectly, God perfectly and fittingly judges his beloved son as well-pleasing in his sight, whose task was precisely to save the people that God loved. And this becomes the reversal of our own judgment as Christ bears God's verdict upon us and we gain God's verdict upon Christ. And so we see again that a, a sober truth sits atop good news and is employed by God in the service of good news. Third then, and finally, the, the grief that we are all sinners is not the final truth about man. This is founded upon the, first upon the fact that it is not the most primal truth about man. Man is a, a king. Man is the ruler of this world, the image of God, called to cultivate God's good world through the imitation of God's gift and love to us. We remain these things. That is to say, we remain men, even after the fall. We have moved our whole selves in a sinful direction. We're inclined to evil. But God in his mercy preserves, even here, much dignity in the human soul. He keeps us from losing all virtue. He does not always give us over to our own self-consumption, but graciously allows, a certain, allows us certain dignified habits that are for the good of ourselves and our neighbors. But still, in some very basic way, in the fall, man fixedly refuses rest in God. And through many complicated layers, even for believers who have begun the process of healing from that, we remain, we tend at least to remain quite self-reliant, dependent on and therefore consuming of ourselves instead of living out of the gift that is God himself. But this is not the final truth about man. Indeed, if God does not just descend into the world under judgment to preserve it from decay or into our very own nature to absorb and reverse God's judgment against us, he descends even into us 
through his Holy Spirit, such that in our sin, we are searched and known by the one who would help us in our deepest fracture and tragedy. The spirit, as it were, goes down into the rungs of the ladder into our soul and finds that most primal and originary place where each of us has refused to trust God. And precisely there, he offers grace to us in that location. He slowly pulls us out of ourselves, leading us to trust him step by step. And, and something odd occurs when this happens. Jesus said it. You remember it, I bet. Well, the one who experiences a little forgiveness love God more or the one who experiences a lot of forgiveness love God more? Of course, you know the answer. And in here, once again, we see a great reversal precisely the deepest and most tragic truth about ourselves, we discover that our final end, which is to love and enjoy God, is actually increased and enhanced precisely because we love God not only as our creator and sustainer, but as our redeemer. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. And where grace abounds, love abounds. And this means that God defeats sin by turning what is against him into the very location of more of him, more of a story in which his beauty is manifested and enjoyed. It does take a maybe a little imagination to see this. It takes a vantage point that is difficult for people who are caught up in themselves, as we all tend to be. But I think we can say that part of what God is always trying to do in the gospel and in the person of Christ is to get us out of our heads a bit. Christ is man for us, uh, but he is the climax of the story, the, the epicenter of history, the prophet, priest, and king, our, our trainer in righteousness, our elder brother, and we're united to him in all of these things. The scaffolding of history and of culture and of civilization is just the canvas on which to write the story of Christ as the center of history. The threads of, of sin and judgment intended to be originally kind of unintegratable into this tapestry are nevertheless woven in the wisdom of God in such a way that his final image is accomplished and even shines more brightly and complexly than it would have otherwise. As my, as my good friend Jim Pachta likes to say, uh, God sees our sin and raises it a redemption. None of this means that we, that we don't weep, that we aren't grieved, that, we're, that we aren't afraid, that we aren't disappointed. None of it means that sin is okay or to be trivialized or called ultimately a good thing. Hurt hurts. Trauma is traumatic. Grief is grievous. <laughs> what it means is that the reign of death is conquered by the reign of life. God defeats evil by forcing it to produce what it was not designed to give. He reigns over heaven and earth by bringing out of extreme tragedy, extreme comedy, in the classic sense of those terms. The epicenter of this is the face of God that we find in Jesus Christ. Can he who gave us Christ not also freely with him give us all things? It is impossible in light of that that God is not for us. And it is impossible that any Christian can endure any pain that God will not defeat and will not make for their good. Not out of its innate tendency, but out of his redemptive power. And so you can trust God. Let's get back to Jesus' words about repentance then. The call of Christ to repentance is, is not ungracious or cold. 
it's not lacking in loving compassion. It's deeply rooted in compassion. In fact, right after this statement, Jesus goes on to tell the parable, a parable emphasizing God's withholding of judgment and his patience. Moreover, we, we know that the end of the story is precisely that Jesus himself bears the very judgment that he warns about. Nevertheless, what, what renders the call to repentance compassionate? I think it's this. In a world under judgment, in a world wherein we are by nature children of wrath, and in a world where we bear in ourselves the tragedy of our own sin, we desperately need the relief offered to us in Jesus' own good news. Jesus would have us avoid cheap medicine that doesn't actually relieve, and rather send us deeper into reality, including reality's sober truths, in order to persuade us that real life and security are to be found in his promises, in his way, in his Father, ultimately in himself. He is good. And precisely because he is good, he would see us relieved of our headlong pursuit of death and judgment in order to rest in the life that he offers us. Moreover, the Christ who encourages a, a turning from our ordinary way and system of securities and self doesn't simply offer himself at a distance, but does so while bearing our very burdens, the very excuses we might use to avoid trusting him. And if that were not enough, recall Augustine's famous line, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. <laughs> the final step of the Spirit's descent is that deepest sight of our fracture, that place in our soul where we are inflexibly numb to God. But descending down the ladder of our many distrusts, that, that circuitous labyrinth in each of us, there is at the center of each of us a heart that is naturally of stone, a stubborn, self-consuming refusal to believe God's expressed heart for us. And with a history of redemptive acts and merciful providences behind him, Christ gives life to, the numb, to that numb place, opening our, our willfully closed eyes to see a beauty, to receive the offer of peace that is union with himself. And thereafter, he, he trains us up through that labyrinth to trust in God. We still struggle, and we need to be honest with God about that. Many of us, perhaps, are, are struggling to trust God right now. And that's not surprising. You can tell him that. He can handle it. He, he does this all the time. <laughs> He's in the business of carrying us along, sometimes gently, sometimes when we need it, with the heavies, as they call it, the, but the testimony of history and of the whole church is that he has earned all of our trust in each of those spaces from the bottom to the top of ourselves. And that the, the moment we begin to think otherwise, we are moving in the direction of descent back into the self, back into that self-protective cynicism, that refusal to depend upon a wisdom that necessarily and obviously would transcend your wisdom and my wisdom. And so finally, again, Jesus' words are not, aren't cold. Repentance is not a burden, but a relief. It's a relief from ourselves, from being trapped in the world of our own heads and its ruinous plottings, and from refusing God's offered friendship and, 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 and an escape of, of the judgment that we deserve. It's a movement ultimately from cynicism to trust, from, from numbness to love, from envy to gratitude. And it's something we, we, get, we get 
to keep doing. Another, another thing my, my good friend Jim Pocka says, we don't have to repent. We do in one sense, but we get to repent. Think of it that way. <laughs> the Christian life is a life of repentance. And so it's fitting to be honest with God while we're struggling with putting our trust in him as we all are. Be raw and honest and open with him about that and seek his tutelage and training, to, training us to trust him even, even when our wisdom and vantage point can't quite see it all. His ace of spades argument, by the way, is going to be Jesus Christ. <laughs> Whatever argument we have otherwise about whether or not we can trust him, God can raise that argument to death and a resurrection. <laughs> the, the end of our agitation is a vision of the good that is centered in Jesus Christ, who is God for us in all of our circumstances, and, and, who is, and, and in whom there's already the presence of that new order of things that we anticipate being consummated at the end. In, in the meantime, we do grieve, but not as those without hope. We grieve as those who are, who are rested in God, whose love renders our story not one of ultimate victimhood, but one in which we are more than conquerors against all those forces which are against us. And it's precisely this note of victory that we need in our moment. We're all legitimately worried about the future. We're all uncertain at how dire is our situation. It seems to be quite dire in some ways. But it is in getting out of our heads or, or being too in our heads that we will be the most useful in the situation. This doesn't mean that we're in denial about the severity of our problems. Rather, it means that despite our legitimate fears and concerns, we are not dominated by fear but rather under the dominion of the very love that is both prior to and the conqueror of the tragedies of this world. The Christian church has often endured acute suffering, even now in many contexts and places. And precisely in such battles does, does man reveal his kingly dignity. We do this by refusing to lose heart or to be lost in complaint, but rather by, by daily casting our anxieties before the throne of grace and then daily throwing ourselves, rested in God, into the task of preserving and bettering the world for the sake of our neighbors. It is difficult to know which tasks lie before us right now, but we know him who fights with us and ultimately for us. And because we can trust him, we are freed to boldly offer our gifts to our neighbors as opportunities present themselves within, within the, the bounds of prudence. P perhaps Lewis would put it this way, Aslan is on the move. <laughs> and because he is, we can be as well. So from, from one homie in the trenches to all my brothers and sisters out there uh, at their own post, as it were, let us all look to our captain and lay down our lives in his service. Farewell.